Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we are talking to Bill Peel, the author of Tonight, It's a World We Bury. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, you've written this book, Tonight It's World We Bury, subtitle Black Metal, Red Politics. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this? Basically, it was a way of like, of kind of smashing my two biggest interests together to see what came out, I suppose. So the book isn't specifically about fascism in black metal so much. It's more about finding like a potential left-wing politics in black metal. Not even like left-wing bands necessarily, even though those do exist. It's more about finding, like, how do I put it? Finding resonances, let's say, between certain ideas that black metal has and and certain ideas that are common among left-wing thought, let's say. So, Bill, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with the genre, can you briefly explain what black metal is and uh, you know where they where it might have been heard before? Sure. So. Black metal started in the late 80s, early 90s, let's say, and it kind of came out of the more extreme sides of thrash metal. So people have probably, people might not have heard the term thrash metal, but, you know, bands like Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax, those are usually considered like the big four of thrash metal. And black metal is more or less what started as more or less just an extreme version of that. So whereas death metal also came out of thrash metal, death metal is very low-pitched, very technical, the famous like cannibal corpse, like really low growling sort of thing. Black metal is the opposite of that. So the guitars tend to be high-pitched, super fast, very amateurish in terms of like actual actually playing the music. And the screaming in black metal tends to be high-pitched rather than low-pitched. So it's difficult to explain black metal in terms of itself, but I always like to make that comparison because black metal and death metal get confused quite a bit to those who aren't that aware of them. And the most famous bands in black metal are still really those bands that were popular in the 90s. So like Mayhem, Dark Throne, Burzum, those are really the big three of like old school Norwegian black metal that are still probably what most people think of today when they think of black metal. And for like more popular stuff, you might people might have heard of the movie and the book Lords of Chaos, which kind of deal in black metal's more sordid 
history outside the music. So things like, you know, burning down churches, killing their bandmates, suicides of certain like famous black metal musicians, things of that. Black metal, its reputation a lot of the time isn't really based on its music. It's more about its, you know, extracurricular activities. So it's not a genre of music for shiny, happy people? Always, yes. Real positive atmosphere to a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, it's got a it's got a very white teenage boy reputation, which like granted that is how I first started listening to it, but thankfully it's it's come a long way since then. I guess in thinking about the relationship between music, in this case black metal and politics, when I or I guess insofar as black metal has some kind of political status. It's normally understood to be either nihilistic and apolitical or right-wing, and hence we've witnessed the development of something called National Socialist Black Metal. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between black metal and NSBM or National Socialism? Sure. So basically since since the genre started, it's had it's been associated with right-wing musicians so earlier i i I referenced burzum the very famous band and the one man behind burzum is called varg vikernis who is probably one of the more famous black metal musicians partly famous because his politics are so right-wing so he how do i put it yeah besides like murdering the band members and stuff <laughs> which which he did back in the 90s he got really into you know, what he called heathen nationalism which is more or less like a kind of pagan nationalism kind of harkening back to the days of pre-christian scandinavia right he's really obsessed with like viking mythology and casting himself as a as a figure of like norse legend that was a big thing that he that, that's a big thing that he was influenced by back in the 90s but it wasn't just varg of course there's also quotes in that lords of chaos book i mentioned there are quotes from hellhammer who was the drummer for the band burzum and he said pretty emphatically like black metal is for white people and as far as we're aware like that was a that was a sentiment that was pretty widely shared among the scene it's like I said, though, it's come a long way. Like nowadays, there are, there are some other more famous musicians. Like there is Mika Asper, who's quite well known from mostly from the band Deathspell Omega, but he also runs, I, I believe he's involved in running a label called Northern Heritage, which is, you know, its name kind of gives the game away in terms of its, you know, racial and like kind of Western civilization in quotes, like interests. And another sort of, famous figure is called Alexei Levkin of a band whose name that I cannot pronounce is it's in Russian if I remember correctly and he's recently kind of been more been more well known for being in the Azov battalion he was he was always very in- interested in that like Ukrainian nationalism and stuff like that but it does go broader than those three figures like particularly NSBM seems to be most common in states or in countries that you could broadly call post-Soviet. So Russia, Ukraine, and Poland, they have always had this reputation in black metal for harboring a very right-wing atmosphere. 
Obviously, you know, there are NSBN bands from America. There are many from Australia as well, which we can get into. There's even some from like South America and Asia. It goes all over the place. But primarily, Russia, Ukraine, and Poland seem to be the kind of hubs for this like NSBM atmosphere, even like since the 90s and to today. It's a continuing trend. In some countries in Europe, Ukraine, for example, you have a situation where like an NSBM festival like Asgard's Ray can sort of operate out in the open. That's not so much the case here in Australia where people have to be a little bit more sneaky, but also have to rely on the concept of, you know, apoliticism. Could you speak a little bit about these bands that are, and their apoliticalness? I'm blanking on the names now, unfortunately. Hang on, yeah, there some Australian bands like Drowning the Light. Oh, what's another one? Spear of Longinus, who are kind of the subject of a very good academic article by Ben Hillier, who's like, a, I believe is a musicologist in Australia who covers metal. But basically, these bands, their politics fly under the radar because, frankly, like being a Nazi isn't exactly, you know, economically viable in a mainstream sense, which I suppose is a good thing. But a lot of these bands, they will kind of use black metal's history of being extreme and being transgressive and being kind of quote unquote radical as a way of saying that, oh, the Nazi things we say, we don't actually believe them. We're just being transgressive, right? And the thing that Ben Hillier writes comes from Keith Kahn Harris, who's like another metal covering academic. He calls it non-reflexive reflexivity, which is basically a more complicated way of saying like everyone kind of knows these bands politics but we have to pretend that we don't know or they have to pretend that they don't know for the sake of getting by and for the sake of becoming popular so that spear of longinus band like if you look them up in something like metal archives right every single one of their demos eps albums whatever is either names, its name is something national socialist or Nazi related, and its artwork is usually Nazi related as well. Often it's the more esoteric stuff, you know, referring to like Julius Evola or the Order of Nine Angles or something like that. But this presence is always there. But in their public facing messages, like on Facebook and stuff, they will often say, you know, oh, we have, the band is not political. The band has no political ideology, right? Which is absurd on its face because you look at all of their publications and it's like you're referring to these kind of fascist icons. But like I said before, basically uh, the bands use these things to, one, kind of sidle in and kind of get around the Nazi accusations, but also to kind of subtly spread those Nazi ideology to people who might genuinely be like unsuspecting black metal listeners. As a teenager, when I was first getting into black metal, like I didn't know that a lot of the bands I was listening to had these associations. So there's the band Drudka from Ukraine, who are like very famous. And I like, I adored them when I was, you know, 16, 17, that kind of area. And I had no idea that they had this side project called Hate Forest, which was much more like overtly NSBM adjacent. And their second album, Blood in Our Wells, is dedicated to Stepan Bandera. I think that's how you pronounce that. The kind of Ukrainian nationalist figure and Nazi collaborator or alleged Nazi collaborator. There is also the band Pest Noir, who are also very famous and quite well known. 
they were another band who, as a teenager, you know, I just listened to them because black metal's lyrics are incomprehensible, right? You can't understand them unless you make an effort to read them. And Pestmar's lyrics are often, you know, French nationalists, and you kind of, it, it cloaks itself in like French revolutionary aesthetics. But more recently, Pesnoir and Famine, its central musician, have become much more overtly NSBM related. And they've, you know, they've played Asgard's Ray and these kind of Nazi festivals, and they've been much more uh, outspoken about that. On the show, Bill, we often ask our guests to come up with solutions to fairly intractable problems, but this may be the most intractable. One of the issues that often arises when these bands are called out for their dodgy politics is they have a massive sook. How do we stop these Nazi bands from sooking so hard? (laughs) I'm not sure you can. (laughs) I think it kind of goes with the territory. Like, what you... I, I think I, I think the move to straight up just kind of boycott Nazi bands is good. Like, a, you know, at a certain point, music has to be economically viable if it's going to succeed, right? So, taking away its kind of financial scaffolding, I think, is a, is a thing that could genuinely deal with Nazi black metal, at least in the short term. That's it, really. And just kind of, like, the awareness that you can have as a black metal listener on the internet and, like, finding out stuff that you would not know, that you would not otherwise know about the black metal bands that you like, you know, who their associations are or who they've played with and stuff. Kim Kelly used to write a fair bit about, like, metal and left-wing politics, and she kind of wrote that, like, if you're going to find out about you know, if the black metal bands that you like are Nazi related, like you kind of need to become an internet detective by, you know, going through metal archives and going through the bands they've played with and all this stuff. But I think the internet has been like a good resource and, you know, just making people aware, like there are left-wing black metal Facebook groups like that I'm in where you can just genuinely ask people like, should I keep listening to this band? Obviously everyone's got their different lines in the sand on that kind of thing. But yeah, honestly, just the, the move to boycott and like the kind of awareness that can only come with our media landscape about, uh, you know, where info, information on the internet is so proliferate that it's going to, that, that you can become aware of, of the bands that you're listening to. You're listening to Yerna Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. Just a reminder that this month on 3CR, it is Radiothon Month and we are raising money for 3CR. Head over to 3cr.org.au slash donate if you would like to chuck in some money to keep this amazing station on the air. Now, back to our interview with Bill Peel about black metal and red politics. Bill, many of the bands you've identified have some unsavoury politics, and yet the book as a whole seems to argue in favour of, if not rehabilitating black metal, at least examining it closely for grounds upon which it might become a more subversive force and fulfil its promise and you describe the genre through various you know, musical and other devices like distortion and so on. Can you briefly outline the approach you took to, I guess, writing about black metal and its interpretation and what it provides for or allows for in terms of more progressive or socialist expression? Sure. Basically, I... I set out writing the book knowing what I didn't want to write first. So, you know, like a lot of black metal people have read books like Lords of Chaos 
just saying, okay, like I don't want like, and my my understanding of that was I didn't just want to write a left wing history of black metal music. Not only because there's not honestly a lot there, but it's not the kind of book that I would like absolutely love to read in the same way that I'd love to read, you know, a book like Black Metal Rainbows, which is another book that we can talk about later, maybe. So I set out knowing that, yeah, I didn't want to just write like a kind of biography of like left wing black metal bands. I didn't really want to write like a left wing history of black metal. I, I set out those chapters the way that I did because I wanted to start with what distinguishes black metal from other genres of music and other genres of metal, right? Because I knew from the start, like the book was going to be about black metal just because I don't really have that much familiarity with other metal genres. <laughs> like it's this, it's this interesting thing where like a lot of black metal fans who I've talked to have said, and I agree with this as well. This is tr- true of me that, you know, are oh, the only real metal genre I listen to is black metal and like everything else, you know, I listen to like shoegaze or, you know, drone or stuff like that. So those kind of concepts, which are what distortion, decay, secrecy, coldness and heresy. I write about those because I think that they're obviously not every black metal band adheres to all of them or adheres to any of them. But those are fairly common conventions that seem very specific to black metal in comparison to death metal or doom metal or other genres, like I said. So I would start with those concepts and kind of make connections between those concepts and like what a thinker on the left might you know might be writing like it would often have like a eureka sort of moment basically it would be like oh i could connect black metal's coldness and that kind of ongoing connection to andreas malm's new book about like not new book but andreas malm's fossil capital which is about like the development of coal during the industrial revolution and like that birth of capitalism more or less so the book uh, the book isn't really a criticism of fascist black metal or like nsbm so much as it is um like an affirmation of what can be left-wing about black metal and i don't want to say i'm putting like a definitive stamp on it either like a lot of you know nazis like black metal and there is something there is something about black metal that nazis seem specifically quite drawn to while i didn't want to obsess about that you kind of have to acknowledge that is a big part of the genre's history, in my opinion. With regards to distortion in particular, it seems that one of its attractive aspects or appealing aspects for you in particular is its non-commerciality. It's, it's, it doesn't aspire to, or distortion doesn't try to create harmony. It tries to create disharmony in the listener. And it's because of that, that and its other qualities, that black metal proudly wants to remain remain on the musical margins at least but you think that there's something valuable about that can you talk about why black metal's particular qualities and its relative unpopularity might be useful or what it generates in terms of a left-wing perspective sure so i kind of i i compared distortion with or i connect this idea of like black metal and distortion with the kind of Nietzschean idea of like self overcoming, right? And I say distortion is kind of, it started in the fifties and it's always had this idea of going further than itself, right? And that it's never been particularly interested in like setting out boxes 
and saying, okay, this is what, uh, this is the music that we are going to play. This is the music that we like, blah, blah, blah. Instead, I say, no, distortion is all about finding further extremes, let's say, or finding further like musical extremes that you can go to or finding like new original creative avenues. And I'm, I'm obviously coming to this from like a libertarian socialist perspective. Obviously that does play a pretty like big factor in the book. And I kind of compare that distortions idea of self overcoming with how black metal has developed since the nineties. It's great. It's sort of got this reputation for being extremely insular and like building walls around itself. Right. Every, Black metal fan kind of knows these stories about, you know, Vagvakernus killing Euronymous right from Mayhem while they were both in the same band, the kind of suicides and the murders and blah, blah, blah. All this stuff is kind of repeated over and over again. And a lot of black metal fans today will be very obsessed with not only those stories, but the black metal music that was created in, you know, 1989 to 1994. That's like its peak period to these people. And their idea of black metal is it never having developed past that point. You know, they're like, oh, why can't this music be more like Dark Thrones, Transylvanian Hunger, right? Which is a very great album, but it came out nearly 30 years ago at this point. So I, yeah, like I said, I compare that to Distortion, which is all about finding new avenues to explore. And towards the end of that chapter, I kind of list out some bands that have, that in my opinion, kind of take that and take that idea of distortion and run with it, right? And connect black metal to other things. And they kind of distort black metal itself by kind of breaking out of the genre and making weird connections with other music. Like Backwash, for example, is a, is a very good musician who kind of mixes up like black metal and industrial music and like rap. Yeah, so that's more or less what I'm getting at by our chapter. And I'm kind of, how do I put this? I'm saying that that's, that's the real way of being non-commercial, if we're going to draw it back to that kind of left-wing critique. Because at the end of the day, you know, Mayhem and Dark Throne of Berlin, they were very radical at the time, they were very uncommercial at the time, but now they're extremely popular in terms of black metal. And by that nature, they sort of end up do becoming commercialized, right? Whereas that idea of distortion, of self-overcoming and exploration, that allows a, that allows us to think of a way that black metal can be un- uncommercial in a long-term sense, right? By exploring avenues instead of becoming stuck in this kind of fortress of what black metal was for a five-year period. Now, Bill, when I think of metal, I can't think of anything more metal than slurping down the blood of the vibrant youth, like a modern-day Dracula, and yet in the book you describe Peter Thiel, for example, as an enemy of black metal. Could you speak a little bit about the relationship between black metal and death and why Peter Thiel is its enemy? Sure. Um, It was a while ago. I was, yeah, I was definitely getting weird when I brought that up. But yeah, um, Peter Thiel, so... This was written back in 2021 where Peter Thiel, he wasn't so much interested in funding this weird kind of tradcath resurgence. And his interest was in like funding, uh, what's, uh, there's a, there's a term for it now, but like what can broadly be called immortality research, more or less. And one of his big things was, yeah, like vampire programs. Like you said, I can't remember the medical term for it, but more or less, it would be injecting the blood of 
like healthy young people and keeping it for himself, like literally injecting him, uh, injecting himself with healthy blood to, you know, prolong his youth, right? It's like a cartoonish villain or it's a cartoonish idea of what a villain is, but that's something that he was genuinely doing, right? And the name, the name for the startup doing this was Ambrosia, right? Which is like the word for like food of the gods, which is how you know, you know, Peter Thiel and his sorts kind of reveal themselves like that's what their interests are. And now, like, you can see the kind of, the kind of wellspring of this whole long-termist movement, right, is obsessed with, like, immortality and kind of permanent, like, unaging technology, right? This idea that, like, you, you can confidently keep your head in, like, a, in a tube or whatever, or connect it to cyberspace or blah, blah, blah. I kind of, I, I draw on black metal because black metal, like other genres of metal, is completely obsessed with death. In this sense that, like, death is all around us. It's a constant looming threat, right? It's always going to happen sooner or later. And many, many black metal musicians are famous for their dying or for, like, murder. It's all very macabre and miserable. And so I use this to say, okay, black metal would, like, find the idea of objective immortality disgusting, right? It's this idea of, like, living forever, Whereas black metal is more interested in, I don't know, I don't want to say the natural world, how do I put it? I feel like that kind of connects to its heathen stuff too much. But basically, black metal is obsessed with like macabre, uh, the macabre and death, and Peter Thiel is not. Peter Thiel and his ilk have kind of internalized capitalism's idea of immortality like 100%. So that was what I was getting at with uh, with that part. I just it, it's just now occurring to me that Peter Thiel may have erred slightly in bringing together all of these anemic tradcath fascist tipsters. He needed some slightly more vibrant ones, perhaps, if he wants to continue the immortality research. Yeah, no, exactly. Maybe. Uh, yeah, that might be the strategy. I don't know. Like it, it is still re- a relatively like young person's movement. This whole tradcath thing, but maybe he's like. I don't know, maybe he's trying to develop, like, an esoteric order of uh, of vampires. You never know. Like, it could go anywhere. Uh, of the various scenes that you examine in the book, one of them is the, the black metal scene in the Middle East in places like Saudi Arabia and Iran. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found when you looked into those scenes and how they sort of differ from scenes, I guess, in other places around the world? Those are really interesting because black metal, black metal has always been very anti-Christian. Uh, like I said before, it's kind of harkening back to these days of like pre-Christian Europe or particularly like pre-Christian Scandinavia. But it was always kind of, it was always kind of marked because Christianity is on the wane, right? In much of the Western world. And these, these black metal bands emerged out of the Middle East, not being anti-Christian, but being anti-Islam. Right. And they, you can read their interviews. Obviously, they're anonymous, but you can read interviews with these musicians and they will often criticize these old school black metal bands for, you know, like blaspheming against a religion that is not going to kill them. Right. Whereas the band Al Namrud, uh, for Saudi Arabia, right? These are two Saudi Arabian musicians and their, their name translates to the unbeliever, if, if I remember correctly in Arabic. And they've gone on the record saying, yeah, if like, if our identities are discovered, we will be killed by the Saudi state, right? And that's a very real risk that they play 
or that they take. And that also affects kind of how their music sounds as well, right? Because like getting musical instruments into Saudi Arabia, particularly playing metal music, is very difficult. So the kind of amateurish and like very highly, the very harsh and very distorted nature of their music, that's honestly indicative of their social conditions, which is very interesting. Another band similar to that, but that I, I look at in more interestingly is Akvan from Iran. And this is one musician and who, uh, Akvan, I, I kind of talk about it. It's as if like traditional black metal came out of Iran rather than Norway, right? Because you kind of have a lot of the same elements. It has Iranian, like Iranian traditional instruments like the oud and the, and the kanun and stuff like that. You've got Iranian traditional singing and some traditional melodies, like a lot of strange microtonal instruments or microtonal, how do microtonal notes that don't really fit well into like the Western canon, let's say, of music. And yeah, the, their lyrics are also very anti-Islam. But rather than being atheist as Al Namruda, Akvan are more interested in kind of harkening back to the days of pre-Islamic Iranian nationalism. So a lot of its lyrics, or a lot of the band's lyrics, are about like Zoroastrianism, which I don't have a big background in. I'm not going to claim that I know a lot about that. But I find there to be a, a very fruitful kind of connection there between, like, for example, Burzum's interest in like Norse mythology and Norse paganism and Akvan's uh, Zoroastrianism and kind of Iranian nationalism that harkens to that. And there have been some bands who kind of pretend to be uh, Muslims to get away with these kind of anti-Islam statements. I, I, unfortunately, I can't remember any off the top of my head. There's one called like, Mullah? Yes. Sorry, Mullah. Yes. Thank you for, thanks for reminding me. Yeah. They're actually called out by the musician from Akvan on Instagram. I believe, because a lot of their, yeah, all of their artwork is in Arabic, but, uh, it's, it's kind of, it, it reads left to right instead of right to left, right? Which is like a very amateurish mistake to make if you're pretending to be an Arabic speaker. Like I've been learning Arabic for like a month and even I know, you know, it reads right to left. Yeah. And so these bands will often pretend to be Muslims to kind of get away with these kind of anti-Islam statements, right? Because anti-Islam is also a very common sentiment among uh, very nationalist, like white black metal bands, right? But obviously uh, being anti-Islam as a white person in France is going to be very different than being anti-Islam from a, for, from an Arab or from a Persian person in Iran, for example, right? On the one hand, like from France, you might be criticizing Islamic, that might be expressed as, you know, criticizing like, like Muslim refugees from, from Syria, for example. But in Iran, you have a real, like what you perceive as a theocratic government who do pose like a threat to you. So obviously there is a difference between those two. But yeah, the, the Middle East and black metal scene is very interesting. And it is, it is mostly, it, it's kind of fulcrum is on the, uh, it's anti-Islam lyrics, I suppose. If you're a metalhead in Iran or elsewhere in the Middle East, you're going to experience some technical difficulties uh, which might um, make anonymity a valuable thing to cultivate. But that anonymity, I guess, or the non-pursuit of fame seems to be uh, a quality you identify or associate very closely with black metal, and you think that also has some 
interesting political derivations. Can you explain why secrecy or anonymity or pseudonymity should be valued in a political sense? In the position that capitalism is in the 21st century, like the free flows of information are extremely valuable to the economy and how the economy works and how the state functions at the same time, right? So you have texts from like it is the kind of like uh stereotypical like french anarchist groups like tikkun for example or the invisible committee who uh i I was very influenced by writing the secrecy chapter but basically i argue that like i said like the free flows of information are extremely valuable in determining like predictability to the economy and to human action and so being able to make yourself anonymous is, is valuable because it prevents yourself from getting captured, right? And uh, like I say in the chapter, there's a real kind of, th- there's a real obsession with like making art confessional and making art all about like revealing yourself or your soul or who you really are or whatever. But I kind of criticize that from the standpoint of, I think we have too much information, right? Like if you are in a real threatening situation, you would not be willing, you would not be so willing to reveal yourself, right? There's a story that I told where, like, the start of the Communist Manifesto literally starts by kind of bringing to light a conspiracy that's been brewing for a long time, right? Because at the time, communists and socialists and anarchists were actually under threat from, you know, governments all around Europe, right? Marx was exiled because of his, because of his beliefs and because of his agitation. And so, yeah, like I said, bands like Akvan or Al Namrud, like they act in secrecy for a reason, right? Akvan's situation, I'm not sure how serious that is, of course. Um, but Al Namrud, like I said, they've gone on the record saying if their identities are discovered, they will almost certainly both be killed by the government. And I think we should be suspicious by, or we should be suspicious with calls to reveal more of ourselves right i don't i don't think we should rely as much on the politics of recognition as we've been told to believe right because i think uh i think there's been a lot of politics of recognition since like the 1800s and there has been some progress made but i think after a certain point it becomes limiting right because in, in this day and age with like like i said capitalism's kind of been like an information society that we're living in like i think it becomes an issue to be very willing to reveal yourself and to turn yourself into more and more information one of the concerns that comes through in the book is the your concern about the uh, recuperation of i guess black metal as a genre but more broadly artistic cultural practices uh, as a whole that have some kind of radical or subversive potential I wonder if you think that black metal can um, resist. Um, I don't see how it can resist commodification, although that's possible, but how it can resist recuperation and how it can be, uh, if it needs to be, transformed into something that better embodies all these qualities that you think are disruptive to capitalist uh, social relations. Yeah, like I said earlier, it's uh, I kind of laid this out the most really with the distortion chapter. I said, okay, like... Capital, oh, uh, no, black metal was a very kind of radical creation back in the eighties and the nineties. And I think what really avoids recuperation is 
is this kind of distorting quality, let's say, like this constant kind of movement away from the original or the original thing, because eventually everything becomes commodified after enough time, right? But I think black metal has been very good at, and one of black metal's best features is its willingness to distort away from these kind of original forms or what black metal looked like back in the 1990s. Obviously, that stuff is still very common. And like I said earlier, I think that the kind of very recuperated black metal, like, you know, like Mayhem and Burzum have been recuperated, right? They're extremely popular. Kind of the the movement against like hipster black metal in the 2010s was all about like kind of the Burzum t-shirts and Dark Throne t-shirts becoming like a fashion statement more than anything else, right? And I don't want to sound too much of like a boomer talking about like, oh, these kids, you know, wear these band shirts without knowing any of the songs. But I think there is a real criticism of black metal if it's going to be obsessed with these bands whose shirts are a fashion statement in one way or another. And so I think one of the like, uh, I've said like I've said too much, (laughs) but like I've said before black metal is kind of exploring new things up in i think in particular there are a lot of bands coming from like the left in black metal who are doing very interesting things so liturgy are probably one of the more famous ones and they're probably the band i reference not most in the book but uh like a great deal and whose politics like i mostly agree with but liturgy are doing very interesting things with black metal but they seem to have more in common with like experimental or like neoclassical music than with black metal. Like they, like I think the best black metal bands, they use black metal as like a jumping off point to do something else that, uh, that I really appreciate. So to kind of circle back, I think, I think how to avoid recuperation in the long term is just by willing, being willing to explore new things and kind of distort as far as you can go and yeah explore what you can do basically with all the sounds that you have uh that you have available uh, bill just finally you mentioned earlier the book black metal rainbows by uh it was edited by daniel lutz and stanimir panayotov could you speak a little bit about that book and what you think projects like that could mean for the future of black metal Black Metal Rainbows, I feel like it will always be compared with my book because obviously we're doing very different things, but, you know, there's like a similar publication period in which it came out and it's basically Black Metal Rainbows is trying to kind of explore black metal from the perspective of specifically like anti-fascism and queer theory, right? And it takes a lot of black metal musicians and theorists and that they've each written like kind of individual uh essays on like what they can do with black metal. So I think uh Hunter or Ravenna Hunt Hendricks from Liturgy wrote an essay in it about uh queer traditionalism, right? Talking about her own uh her own kind of interest in like Catholicism, for example, which is very interesting, but from the perspective of her as a trans woman. And it's kind of uh, one of the new it, it's I think it can be seen as like this really great emergence of a lot of trans and queer people in black metal specifically. So aforementioned Ravenna Hunt Hendricks, um, Margaret Kiljoy, who is really great and who's the musician behind or one of the musicians behind Feminazgul, who are like a keyboard centric, uh, black metal band. There's the other musician 
who's I don't remember her name, but her project is called Victory Over the Sun. And she makes like very strange experimental, like microtonal black metal with noise music. So yeah, but more or less black metal rainbows is if my book was doing what I do with, you know, Marxism or anarchism or whatever, doing that with queer theory instead. So uncovering what is, what is queer about black metal or how can you queer black metal to use it as a verb right so yeah and like i said i'm a big fan of it i think i think it's indicative of a of a very positive trend in black metal where more queer people uh feel more comfortable in the genre that has historically been extremely hostile to them like some black metal musicians have done hate crimes against queer people specifically in the past but i think that this i think books like black metal rainbows are a step in the right direction and i can only wish for more of them Imagining a world beyond Burzum shirts. <laughs> exactly. Liturgy shirts, maybe. Now, Bill, we are ending on a cheery note, but uh, somebody, it is Radiothon month here at 3CR, and somebody did say they would give us 50 bucks for every show that I ended by saying, and on that cheery note, which is what I usually say when someone says incre- something incredibly depressing at the end of the show. So... On that cheery note, we'll wrap it up. The book is Tonight It's a World We Bury, Black Metal, Red Politics. It's out through Repeater. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Well, Andy, that is our show. We've got a few more questions for Bill that we will ask him on the podcast version, which people can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pesaran. But before we go, we have a few things to say about Radiothon. We do care. We've raised some money, but we need to raise more. In fact... How much do we need to raise, Cam? What's the figure? I think that we should aim, in honour of what we've just been discussing, to raise $666 before the end of the month. Hail. Which people can do by going to givenow.com.au slash CR slash Pesaran or going to 3cr.org.au slash donate. Just make sure you say it's for Yenar Pesaran. And we also have a few people to thank who have already donated, Andy. We do. Do we, Cam? Well, let's thank them. So, thank you to Sharon, Suzanne, Karen, Paul, Ben, Al, Marcus, Jordan, Scott, Charlie, Trudy, Kat, Evan, Kurt, Brendan, Paul, Thomas, Robin, Jay, Kath, Joe, Kaz, Emily, Sarah, Peter, Caitlin, Darren, Sean, Sean again, Daniel again, Sean again, Sean again, Sean again, Daniel again, Christian, Lachlan, Paul, Juliet, Garth, Paul, a different Paul, Kev, Ian, Teresa, Robert, Gary, Vanessa, Daniel, Sean yet again, and finally a very big thank you to Andrew from Queensland. We really appreciate it. GiveNow.com.au slash CR slash Yenapesran or 3CR.org.au slash donate are the places to go. And yeah. We'll catch you next week. We will. And thank you so much for the support. We really appreciate it. Bye. See ya.
Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Stay tuned, stay radical. Are you feeling depressed about the future of our planet? The Eco-Socialism 2023 conference could address your worries by providing a platform for radical solutions. Activists from around the world examine the links between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. You'll hear from Japanese Marxist Kohei Saito, author of Capital in the Anthropocene, who argues that capitalism's pursuit of unlimited growth and profits is the major barrier to ecological sustainability. Inspirational speakers from the Asia-Pacific region, including India, Pakistan and the Philippines, will take up the fight for climate justice and against war and fascism. Eco-socialism also highlights women's and queer oppression, First Nations sovereignty, and so much more, including a session featuring former refugee Baruz Bachani. For more information and bookings, go to our website, ecosocialism.org.au. Ecosocialism 2023, A World Beyond Capitalism, Saturday July 1 to Sunday July 2 at Victorian Trades Hall. A 3CR supporter. 